like me. Are we good now? You know, it's been a long time since I stood behind this pulpit. That's a literal statement. (laughs) This pulpit was the original pulpit when I came here in 1988. It was actually three inches taller. We cut the bottom off. Um, So it's very interesting to be back up here in this situation. But what's even better than all of that is um, to be in this place today with you. Um, Those of us who are on both sides of this whole process uh, to get to here, um, what an incredible work God has done to bring us to this place. And I just, I want to express my thanks and appreciation to the God's Grace original church family uh, for your patience with us as we navigated through those waters. Um, And it is so exciting just to be together and to be a church family together. And so I'm looking forward to what God's going to do. So thankful for the relationship that uh, God has given to John and I together to just to to pray for you guys, to uh, help in the discipleship process, um, and then to be here this morning uh, to worship the Lord. So uh, I, again, just am so thankful for what God has done and the opportunity to share with you this morning. I want to talk about qualifies, qualifications this morning. Linda and I have two girls, both of whom are in their 30s, so they are grown young women at this point, but we both can still remember when we needed babysitters for them. It was important for us when we needed those babysitters to have someone that we knew someone who was responsible, preferably someone who had had experience. Either they were a mother or they were an older sibling to younger kids. Now, I suspect as parents, if you've had younger children and raised kids, you've done the same thing when you needed babysitters. If you are an employee, in order to get your job, you had to show up. You had to get an interview. You had to demonstrate your qualifications. Why should an employer hire you to do this job? Because employers don't hire unqualified people, well, at least in theory. Um, Now, suppose this morning that you were a landlord and you had a 20-acre farm and you wanted to have a bumper crop. What kind of individual would you hire to run your farm. Well, I suspect you'd want somebody who was knowledgeable in farming, right? They knew what it would take to get the ground ready and what season to plant the seed and how to take care of it during that process and what to do when it was time to harvest it. You'd probably also want someone who could lead others in that process because it's going to take more than one person to harvest all of that. You'd probably want someone who would work hard and someone you could trust that they would do it well and do it right. Now, carrying along in that same line, suppose that you were looking for someone to share the gospel with a really close friend, 
or a family or a community setting. You'd been having some conversations with people and you thought, you know, now's the time to really share the gospel with them. What kind of individual would you look for? Well, I suspect if it was left to you and I, we would look for someone who knew the gospel. I mean, that would be very helpful. We'd want somebody who was friendly, engaging, who could carry on conversations with folks. Someone who was equipped and mature enough to respond to the question. Someone who was stable. Now, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Because in Mark chapter 5, we're going to see the person and the qualifications that Jesus looked for when he sent out someone to share the gospel. Now, here's the context. Here's the shocking part. Mark chapter 5 follows right after Mark chapter 4. It's amazing how numbers work that way, right? So, Mark chapter 4, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and John has been preaching through the gospel of Mark. And in Mark chapter 4, we started with the sower, the seed, of the soils, the parable of the soils. We talked about the different aspects of the different parables that came up, and the chapter ends with the stilling of the storm. When we complete that chapter, please note the attitude or the feelings of the disciples at the very end of that chapter, verse 41. They became very much afraid, and they said to one another, What then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now Jesus had been teaching during the day. They had gone through the storm late in the day. So it's late in the afternoon by the time they've reached the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It may be close to dusk. With relief, the disciples bring their boats up to the beach, step out onto stable ground. We made it through the storm. But as they look around, all of a sudden it dawns on them where they are. Verse five, Chapter 5, verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea and they were in the country of the Gerasenes. Now, for us, we just kind of read through that. The country of the Gerasenes was Gentile territory. Matter of fact, what we discover later on at the end of the story in verse 20 They were in the area of Decapolis, which means the ten cities, which were Greek-established cities. So we are in Gentile territory, not Jewish territory, meaning we're not quite home yet, you know, in this journey. And not only are they in Gentile territory, they're looking around and they notice there's a cemetery right over here. And just outside the area of the cemetery is a pig farm. There are thousands of pigs that are being raised right there. Don't you suppose at that particular moment, being in a cemetery near pigs in Gentile territory, that the disciples may have slightly been backing up thinking, you know, maybe we'll get back in the boat. That storm wasn't quite as bad as we thought it was. Let's go back to the other side. 
immediately as they're in that thinking process, a man runs out from the tombs. Verse 2. When Jesus got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with the stones. A wild man rushes out to meet the disciples in Jesus. And I know now they're backing up towards the boat. This is a demon-possessed man, we'll discover. We don't know how he came to this position. What we can say for certain is that he was no longer living at home. He'd been cast out of the normal realms of society. He had been granted by virtue of being demon-possessed incredible physical power. says the chains couldn't even hold him, that he broke the shackles and the chains himself. But he also did damage to himself. So he was causing great physical torment. One writer, in trying to contemporize this, said, This is the man your mother told you to avoid. He's the fellow that the police routinely lock up. He's the deranged man that stalks neighborhoods and murders families. He's the face that fills the screen on the evening news. Residents don't know what to do with him. They restrained him, but he broke the chains. Matter of fact, the word in verse 4 that is translated subdue is used for taming a wild animal. So it could literally be translated, no one could tame him. He was wild. He not only broke the chains, but he ripped off his clothes, and he lived in the caves, what we would call a cemetery, because that's where they buried the dead, in caves. He cut himself on, his, on the rocks, and he was a menace to everyone. He was a dirty, screaming, filthy, bleeding, naked maniac. Get the picture here. Today, we'd lock him up and we'd throw away the key. Jesus, however, is about to have an encounter with a maniac. Now, before that, have a stop just for a moment. Take a little sidebar. What do you know about Jewish tradition in reference to unclean people, sick people, cemeteries, and pigs. <laughs> yeah. We don't do that. As a matter of fact, even if you come accidentally into contact with those, you are now ceremonially unclean. And there's a whole long list of things you need to go through in order to, quote, get back to the place where you actually can go into the synagogue and worship. Here are the disciples, good Jewish people, if you will. As this naked, bloodied, screaming, wild man comes rushing towards them, what are they thinking? (laughs) It's time to leave. It's time to go. We are out of here. They are horrified. Matter of fact, I think that they are more frightened now 
than they ever were frightened when they were in the boat in the midst of the storm. They'd been in storms before. And yes, this one was severe. And yes, they feared for their lives. But that was now over. This was uniquely different. How many demonic men rushing out of a cemetery cemetery screaming had they encountered before? To my knowledge, none in that context. This demon-possessed man, super strong, filthy, comes running towards Jesus. But he doesn't attack Jesus. Seeing Jesus from a distance, verse 6, he ran up and he bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, literally the word is screaming. He says, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Now again, stop for a moment. Does it surprise you that the demons know who Jesus is? They knew his name. Jesus didn't have a placard that said, oh, I'm Jesus, I'm the great I am. You know, they knew who he was. Matter of fact, what you find in Scripture is demons often have a better understanding of who Jesus is than the people that Jesus hung out with. They knew who he was. They knew who is his authority. Son of the Most High God. So they knew his name. They knew his authority, and they knew his power. Don't torment me. They knew, the demons knew, that Jesus had the ability to torment them. In essence, they're begging for mercy. They fear Jesus because they know his authority and his power. There are no atheists in hell. There are no demons who are atheists. Every single demon knows who Jesus is. And they're frightened of him. Now, Jesus has already started, as this man is speaking, or the demons are speaking through the man, he's already started to cast them out. The text says in verse 8, He had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So he's already in the process of casting out the demon when Jesus turns to the individual and he says, what is your name? Let me retranslate that. He says, do you know who you are? You know who I am. Do you know who you are? Note how the man answers. He said to him in the middle of verse 9, My name is Legion, for we are many. Note the change in pronoun. From my name to we. Or, let me again retranslate that for you. I'm so full of demons, I no longer know who I am. An invading army has taken over the personality of this man and changed him. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. 
Now, when you and I hear the word legion, for the most part, I suspect we think military. You know, a Roman legion, a legion of doom, you know, some kind of military force. Well, let me just ask some questions, and I had to research this because I didn't know either. Um, how many soldiers are in a Roman legion? Let's just take this out of the biblical context for a minute and put it into the context of what we normally think in terms of military. There's about 6,000 foot soldiers in a Roman legion, 120 horsemen, more or less, and a few other personnel is what the books usually say. I figure those must be the cooks, you know, and the cleaner-uppers. So to the Jewish mind, again, just like in our mind, when they heard the word legion, it brought before them this picture of a relentless force, an overpowering military might. Now, skipping ahead just a little bit in the story, how many pigs were there in the pig farm? Just look in verse 13. Since Jesus gave them permission and coming out of the unclean spirits, they entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea. And about 2,000 of them were drowned in the sea. Now, since his name was Legion and there were many, is it possible that the man was possessed by over 2,000 demons? Think about that for a minute. And wouldn't that help explain his condition, his strength, and the fear that he produced in others? Now, we don't really know how many demons there were in terms of a number. We do know there were many because that's what he said. We are many. I suspect there were potentially thousands. The demons don't want to leave. It appears they feared being tormented, so they asked Jesus to send them into the pigs. There was a large herd of swine, verse 11, feeding nearby on the mountains. And the demons implored him, begged him, please don't send us into the swine, or please do send us into the swine, so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And 2,000 pigs hurled themselves off the edge of the cliff into the water and drowned. Question, what are the disciples doing during this whole encounter? Nothing! <laughs> yeah, getting closer to the boat. Certainly standing very nearby the boat. And they're probably stunned Staring in amazement. This is something they had never encountered before. Pigs are embodied by demons, and a disciple is made in a cemetery. Why would Jesus allow the demons to go into the pigs? I mean, they had to ask permission, right? And Jesus gave them permission. Why? Well, let me suggest to you that it's a visual demonstration of the power of Christ 
as well as a visual demonstration of the change that takes place in the man who is now no longer demon-possessed. Because you can say, I'm, demon, I'm no longer demon-possessed. Well, how do we know? Because we saw what happened to all the pigs when the demons left. That's not a normal thing for pigs to run over the cliff and jump into the water and drown. So I think Jesus is giving for all the audience. And who's the audience? His disciples. They're the only ones there. A visual demonstration of his power. And I also think that he's giving a visual demonstration to the man who's now been healed of what Jesus has done in terms of making him whole. Therefore, no one can deny what happened because they've seen this visual demonstration of the power of Christ. Now, one pastor suggested that if Jesus were to do this today, he'd be in a heap of trouble. Because first of all, the EPA would come out and investigate the pollution in the Lake of Galilee because of the pigs that are now rotting out there. Then the SPCA would show up because they're concerned about cruelty to animals. How could you do this to 2,000 pigs? And then, of course, the Livestock Association and the consumers groups would all show up because now there's no longer this pig farm and these herders and these people, so we have an indentation or a glitch in our financial well-being. How did the people of Jesus' day respond? (laughs) Not really a whole lot different. Verse 14, the herdsmen ran away, and they reported in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus. They observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Weren't they frightened before when he was demon-possessed? Because they couldn't tame him, so they stayed away from him, so they relegated him to the cemetery? Now, he's sitting. He's actually got clothes on. And he's in his right mind. And they're still frightened perhaps even more so. And they begin, and those who had, excuse me, verse 16, those who had seen it described to them how it happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. Okay, so you got the picture, right? The townspeople come out, the herdsmen who are there leave to get all the townspeople. The townspeople run out, they see the man, the herdsmen give the description, this is what happened. You won't believe it. This is incredible. What an awesome event. Nothing like this has ever happened in this region before. And they asked Jesus to leave. To me, that's one of the saddest verses in Scripture. Jesus had taken a man who no one else could control, who was demon-possessed, by multitudes of demons and cast out all the demons and healed him and brought him back to a healthy state and they don't want anything to do with Jesus. 
It almost appears they'd rather be with the demon-possessed man than in the presence of Jesus. They were more afraid of Jesus than they were of demon possession. Matter of fact, if you look in the account in Luke, in Luke chapter 8, when it gets to this point in the story, it says their hearts were gripped with fear. But that's a graphic statement, isn't it? Hearts gripped with fear. Let me suggest to you at least a couple of reasons why they were so frightened. One, because the demoniac man could be avoided. You could just kind of put him aside, leave him out there, and just forget about him. It was easier that way. But I think there's another reason. Whose pigs just drowned? (laughs) Theirs. What impact did that have on them personally? Pocketbook. (laughs) Businesses changed as a result of 2,000 pigs no longer being available to eat or to sell or to breed for further development. So they asked Jesus, they don't want anything to do with change. So they asked Jesus to leave. And since Jesus never goes where he isn't wanted, he starts to leave. Story's not over. Because what about the man? So verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. Same words that the townspeople used to get rid of Jesus. You know, he's using to stay with Jesus. Well, that's understandable, right? I mean, what had Jesus just done for him? I mean, he was a totally, completely new person. Wouldn't you want to be with Jesus if Jesus had done that for you? And he begs Jesus to take him with him. Verse 19, Jesus did not let him. Jesus said no. Strange way to treat a new disciple, isn't it? It's not what you and I would have done. But it's what Jesus did. He said, no, you can't come with me. But there is something you can do. Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Let me rephrase that. Go and tell. In the context from the beginning of Mark 4 to here, sow the seed. But what about training? What about instruction? What about maturity? What about biblical insight? I mean, if you and I were sending someone out to share the story about Jesus, we'd want to be sure that they were nurtured and discipled and growing and mentored and involved in a good church. There's no telling what a new believer might say or do. They can get all of us in a whole heap of trouble. But Jesus had none of those concerns. Now, please don't hear me say that discipleship, nurturing, church involvement, and mentoring is not part of our normal process of growing in Christ and being better equipped. But you don't have to wait for all of that to happen to tell somebody about Jesus. 
He told him to go home and to tell his friends what happened. How long had he been away from home? Had he tried to go home before? When he was somewhat stable? And they kicked him out, back out again? What if he was married? And you were his wife? And he showed up at the door and you had kids? Are you going to open the door? That's assuming your house has a door. Let me put it again in the context. Suppose you had a brother who had spent 10 years in a mental hospital for the criminally insane. He had a religious experience and he was released. You letting him home? (laughs) Probably not. The man was insane. He was demon-possessed. But now he's in Christ, and he's whole and healthy. No training, no teaching, no seminars, no tests. All he knew was that Jesus had made him whole, and he had a story to tell. A story of how he had lived in anguish and torment, a menace to anyone and everyone who came by, angry, hostile, rebellious, full of evil, and how Jesus had freed him and given him peace and joy. Because the demoniac, the ex-demoniac, was now rational, controlled, and at peace with himself and with God. Or, as the scriptures say, and we've often... We use this phrase in a lot of different contexts. He was clothed and in his right mind. He was clothed and in his right mind. And apparently that was enough for Jesus to commission him as a missionary to the Gentiles. Go and tell. Go to the people you know the best who have for years not wanted anything to do with you and tell them what God did for you. And that's where all outreach begins. (laughs) You start where you are, and you tell what you know. Because you can't tell something you don't know. (laughs) Jesus had come straight from a confrontation with a storm in nature to a confrontation of equal violence in human nature. The person we met at the beginning of the chapter was the devil's prisoner. He was held captive by thousands of demons. Barely a vestige of humanity remained. And so he roams among the tombs, naked and wild and screaming, hopelessly and helplessly under the dominion of demonic powers. And he meets Jesus. And he is instantly changed. He's no longer out of control, but he's sitting. He's no longer naked, but he's clothed. He's no longer crazy, but he's in his right mind. There are seven episodes in the Gospel of Mark, 
about demonic affliction and torment in humans. In each and every case, when they meet Jesus, guess what happens? Healing takes place and wholeness comes and the demons are cast out. Why? Because Jesus is always victorious over demons. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Earlier this week, I received a report from a friend of mine um, who's with Wycliffe and helping with setting up portable translation stations, and he was in Nepal uh, in January. And he sent this little report, and it just seems so appropriate to this story. He's referencing an event of a friend of his in Nepal. And he says, three years ago, a mentally ill girl landed on Ramahati's doorstep, outcast by her family, discharged and labeled as hopeless by the mental hospital. She roamed the countryside with no clothes, ruthlessly driven away by the local farmers. Finally, she ended up on Ramahati's doorstep, cold, naked, alone, and hopeless. The Kamadis took her in, prayed for her, introduced her to Jesus, and he healed her. Months later, she went back to her family, clothed, smiling, with a clear head and a sane mind. They rejected her. They wanted nothing to do with her. Suspicious of the Christianity that had, quote, bewitched her into acting healthy. They sent her back to the Ramahati family, and she became her new mother. To this day, the girl is living, breathing, walking, and well. Because Jesus, in the first century, is the same Jesus in the 21st century, who has power over demonic forces. That's a really nice story, isn't it? Let me give you a little application for us this morning. The truth of Scripture is that we are all very much like Legion. Oh, not demon-possessed! But we were dead in our sins. We were living in principle with the prince of the power of the air. And we were children of wrath. Look Ephesians chapter 2, if you want the references. First three verses. But when by faith we met Jesus, we were changed. We were made alive in Christ by grace. And it's all because of Jesus that we're alive at all. And when we've come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we've become new creatures in Christ. And Jesus is reminding us this morning that therefore every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ have a story to tell. It's not about what we know. It's about who we know and what he did. So be like the ex-demoniac. Go and tell. He went and proclaimed what Jesus had done. How do I know that? Look in chapter 7. Look in chapter 7. Verse 31. Again, he, meaning Jesus, went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. This should ring a bell, right? So, 
And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. And Jesus took him aside from the crowd and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting them, he touched the tongue with the saliva. And looking up, he said, be opened. And the man's eyes were opened. Why would they bring this individual to Jesus? Because the demon-possessed man had gone back and he said, Jesus can do this. So as soon as Jesus shows up again, they say, we're going to figure this out. Let's find out. And they bring the guy. And Jesus again heals. Because the man went and told. And it had an impact upon his community. So the question for you this morning, and for me, is twofold. What has Jesus done for you? Because if Jesus hasn't done anything for you yet, then that's the first place to start. Because if he hasn't done anything, you don't have a story to tell. And it starts by recognizing who Jesus is and where his authority comes from, and what he's accomplished. All of us are sinners by nature. All of us are under the judgment of God, and all of us are in need of forgiveness. The wages of our sin is death, separation from God. But God, who is rich in mercy, has caused us to be born again, Peter says, to a living hope. Paul says, by grace we are saved. We receive the gift. And Jesus does a work in our hearts. So it starts with recognizing what Jesus has done. And if Jesus is your Savior and he's done that work, who are you telling? Go and tell the words. Go and tell of the words of Jesus to the man. The commissioning of a demon-possessed man shows that God isn't looking for perfect people, just changed people. (laughs) People who have come to know the Savior. And God allows us to partner with him in the awesome work of changing the world one heart at a time. We get to share... Jesus with people, and Jesus changes lives. What makes you qualified? A personal relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. And you're qualified to tell because you've come to know him. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 says, You are from God, little children, and you've overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let's pray together. Father, this whole story of what you do and the power that you have sometimes becomes distant from us. And we read it as we read a children's story and go, here it is. And yet the reality is you've done that same work in our lives as well. You've brought us to the place where we needed to know you. And you've helped us understand what it is to come into a personal relationship with you. And so, Father, now I pray that you would empower us to tell. Just to share what we know about you with the people that you bring into our lives so that we might honor you and you would be pleased and other lives would be changed. Give us, as this last song says, a pure and holy passion to follow hard after you. Let's stand and sing together one pure and holy passion.
magnificent obsession 